the newfangled ideas that I was introduced to as I came over from across the pond several years or decades ago now was this concept called Christmas in July. Never heard of that concept before. Um, so I was reading about this boy who had learned about it's Christmas in July and had wanted to get a bicycle. And so he wondered how he could get that and having listened to his Sunday school teacher about praying for things, you know, he goes to his room and uh, being a member of one of those churches which had a high liturgy began his prayer saying, great and almighty God who hears our prayers and who has not forgotten me, would you in your wisdom grant me this gift of the bicycle and grant it tomorrow. So he gets up in the morning and there is no bicycle. So he said, maybe I did something wrong here. So he was going through his channel surfing and came across this particular channel, which I would not name because they seem to claim that they have it all. And so then he heard it. Then he went back to his room that night and said, God, I claim this bicycle. And in fact, I'm going to be very specific. I want it blue in color and I want it tomorrow. So he got up and looked outside. It's not there. Now he's getting a little anxious, wondering what am I doing wrong? Maybe I'm not asking the right way. Maybe I don't have the right words. And as he's thinking about it, his mother to make the Christmas in July more real actually put a manger scene. And there is little baby Jesus and there is Joseph and Mary and the shepherds and all. And he took a good look at it and asked his mom, what does this mean? Mom tells him this is the birth of Jesus. This is Mary, the mother of Jesus and so on and so forth. And in a little while, as the mother watched, the little boy takes the statue of Mary and puts it into his pocket and goes into his room. And so she's curious, what is he going to do with that? And as she goes into his room, she hears this prayer. Jesus, if you want to see your mother back. <laughs> and thus, many of our prayers are like that. I would confess that my prayers are all about give me, give me, give me. It wasn't just the pop group who sang that song. But so today we are coming to a very important topic, obviously, the topic of prayer. And I approach it... Uh, because angels would fear to tread into this sanctuary. But before we do that, I thought that we should set the stage for what is the goal of our class? What is the goal of why we need to know how to grow? We've gone through several. We've talked about what does sanctification mean? We've talked about what does Bible study involve? We've talked about many other things related to meditation. We've talked about worship as an activity but before it becomes an activity as an identity and so on but today we come to that which will determine who we are as someone from an earlier generation said who we are in private on our knees in our bedroom before God is who we really are in other words what we think about when we are not thinking about anything is who we really are and so today we will set the stage by going ahead and reading, though it is familiar material, the Lord's Prayer. So I thought that in order for us to be more involved in the reading of scripture, I have requested Christian to hand out to you little slips which will have scripture references. So, and that is to read aloud when I call the scripture reference out and it will also ensure that my voice does not put you to sleep early in the morning and therefore my service to the body of Christ is to make sure everyone is awake for the rest of the service. So whoever has Matthew chapter 6 and 5 to 8 and then there's another person who should have Matthew chapter 6 9 to 13 go ahead and read it out loud so that we can all hear and so Somebody must have Matthew chapter 6, 5 to 8. If no one has that, you shall hear my voice. 
<clears throat> and when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogue and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. And someone has Matthew chapter 6, 9 through 13. Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into, not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Thank you both. Let's uh, seek the Lord of the Word before we open the Word of the Lord and go into our study today. Our Father and our God, we come into your presence rather hesitant that our prayers are so inadequate. But we thank you that you know our needs even before we seek you. And our need today is what the disciples asked you. Lord, teach us to pray, for we want to know you beyond the sacred pages of the written word. We seek you, the living word. So search us, O oh God, know our hearts. See if there is any wicked way in us and lead us in the path everlasting, so that the words of our mouth and the meditation of our hearts be acceptable to you, our Lord and our Redeemer, for we pray this for Christ's sake. Amen. Amen. The infallible test of spiritual integrity, said someone, is your private prayer life. Why are we challenged by prayer? And I think that is the challenge we have with all the spiritual disciplines. We are like, as Luther used to say, drunken men trying to climb a horse. On the one hand, we want to check off all the boxes and say, okay, tell me a program and I will follow it so I can become like Christ. And so we begin doing, whether it is Bible study or prayer or coming to church services and fellowship and stewardship and ministry of evangelism and so on. But then we get burnt out and said, well, this is not working. I'm just doing it. There is duty, but there is no delight. And so it's a drudgery. And so we fall to the other side and say, okay, now I just want to have a free hand. I'll just do whatever I want. But then we find that doing whatever we want leads us to become mini messiahs. We follow our hearts in the way of Disney and then we find that we are coming up short. So what is the solution? Here's a vignette. We used to have a lot of vignettes in medical school. It almost seems like the examiners were more interested in knowing what I did not know than finding out what I did know. But here is one vignette which struck me as something which came close to home. Maybe you identify it. Here is a ninth grader who comes to her elder and asks this question. I know I'm saved. Jesus loves me. I'm going to heaven. But what good is that? I am in ninth grade and not a single boy from my class has ever asked me out. You see the tension in this? How are you going to counsel this 15-year-old? How are you going to counsel yourself when you don't feel like praying or you don't feel like? That's where I think we got to go back and say, okay, mere knowledge does not transform lives. This teenager has all the knowledge that she needs. Her theology is absolutely right. But for her, the love of boys is more real to her than the love of Christ. It's kind of like having an audio and a video source in the same room, right? If you had one audio source and you had a video source, guess what you're going to be listening to? The video will always be louder. And that's what's happening to much of our lives in Christ, that the sound of the world is in video. The sound of Christ is in audio. In other words, our affections, the desires of our heart are not touched by the love of Christ. Therefore, all the knowledge that we have of the inheritance that we have in Christ and His love does not change our hearts. The primary purpose that the Holy Spirit has in our lives is to present Christ as the supreme treasure of our life so that Christ becomes more precious to us than anything else. One of the things that we are told is that Christ must reign over all or he is not king at all. 
part of our challenge is at the moment of our sin, we love our sin more than we love Christ, but it's not something like we can go to a store and say, give me $15 more worth of Christ. The Holy Spirit takes the word of God and applies it to our hearts and shows Christ as precious and say, look at him, cling to him. He loves you. When the love of Christ becomes real to us more than the love of the world, then we will say, how can I grow in this love of Christ? So all the spiritual disciplines are built on a person. Principles and steps are good enough, but they are not enough for us to grow in Christ. In order to grow in Christ, we must love Christ. But loving Christ is also not just a grace, but it is a discipline. So as we come to these spiritual disciplines, let us not forget that these are not to broker grace, but as a response to grace. Our hearts are to be motivated by the love of Christ. That for this 19-year-old, 15-year-old teenager, what she needs is a transformation of her heart so that her affections are captured by Christ through the word applied by the Spirit. Which explains why when Paul prays, and we'll look at it in detail, is Paul's primary prayer is never about the health of his congregation, physical health or anything like that. But what does he pray in Ephesians 1? I pray, binding my knees to the Father in heaven, that you may know the length and the breadth, the height and the width of the love of Christ, which surpasses all knowledge, and that you might be filled with it. So when the love of Christ becomes real to us, then we will be willing to do this. So duty becomes then a delight. And that's what John Newton expressed, isn't it? Our pleasure and our duty, though opposites before, since we have seen his beauty, are joined to part no more. In other words, much of our Christian life is the transformation of our desires, which are disordered. Those desires which were good have become disordered so that we, now we want what we want rather than what Christ wants. I wanted to set the stage because prayer should flow out of that heart which wants to please God. I have said these three statements to many and say this to myself. In fact, I have a four by four and I put it right in front of my desk. I look at it every day to remind myself that the reason that I want to obey God is because I want to please Him. Who has 2 Corinthians 5.9? Does anybody have that? Alright, Christians got it. So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please Him. So my goal in life is to please Christ, to please God. Then the question arises, how do I please God? Who has Matthew 3.17? Okay, Matthew 3.17 is the context is Jesus is getting witness from the Father and this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. I please God by becoming like Christ. It's simple. For any doctrine of sanctification, if somebody is teaching you something about how to grow in Christ, we have to ask, did this work for Christ? And we look at the fact that prayer was the supreme activity that our Lord engaged in. He was a man of prayer. He prayed while living. He prayed on his death. And he prayed all the time. So yes, I, my goal in life is to please Christ. I please God by being like Christ. And here's the third thing. We all know that we haven't arrived yet. And so God knows that I'm not perfect, but he does expect me to be growing. Second Peter 3.18, but grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. So our, I wanted to set the stage because Growing in Christ is not a program, it's a person. When principles and steps wander far from Christ, they may make our lives grow, go better and easier, but they are not what makes us Christ-like. The principles are there because they depend upon a person. If we only depend on principles, it's no good, no better than a Boy Scout manual. But Jesus, in his work in our hearts through the Holy Spirit transforms our desires. So that's where we want to start from. Our desires need to be transformed. That's our prayer. So having set that stage and I have not even gone into how the transformation happens except to state the transformation happens because the word of God is applied to our hearts by the Spirit of God whereby Christ has become more precious. Christ has become more beautiful. And that is the process that begins at justification but continues through sanctification. So having said that, now we will actually enter 
into the lesson and you have your handout as the class goes and all I'm doing today is to put some pebbles in your shoe not exhaustive but hopefully enough to get you thinking so what is prayer Mark Dever defined it as an act and an attitude which means prayer advertises that we are dependent and that God is dependable at the very least it says that God I'm dependent on you but it's also a conversation and an encounter with God which he started the conversation that he started was in creation which is general revelation and then through the special revelation which is his word and we respond to it so a conversation is how we get to know people and a conversation is how we get to know God so prayer is a means of getting to know our Heavenly Father and that's the difference between Christian prayer and a pagan prayer which we just read about that a Christian prayer is rooted in our relationship with God as our Father yes it may involve saying help but it starts with wow what a great father you are it moves to confession and repentance leading to thanksgiving which then can culminate in help but at the basic it's a familial relationship which underlines our access to God in Christ the moment we move away from that we become people who are like what Jesus taught praying long prayers using words which have really no meaning because we are approaching it as an activity but not as a means of growing in knowing this person who has saved us and loved us so what is prayer again the Westminster Confession gives us a more comprehensive answer it's an act and an attitude it is a conversation and an encounter with God and it is an offering up of our desires there you go unto God for things agreeable to his will in the name of Christ with confession of our sins and thankful acknowledgement of his mercies and therefore the way that I have learned is that simple mnemonic ACTS many of you will be familiar the prayer begins with adoration and when we know who God is it immediately makes us think about who we are for as Christian taught there is no knowledge of humans without the knowledge of who God is every knowledge of who we are begins with who God is but then that leads us to confession saying who am I I am a sinner like Isaiah and then God offers the forgiveness and mercy so we respond with thanksgiving and that thanksgiving then says what will you have me to do Lord and so adoration and confession leading to thanksgiving leading to supplication or intercession is the progress of the gospel in an individual's life but it's also the progress of the gospel in our daily prayers or ought to be so why should we pray well if it was good enough for Jesus it's good for me even if nothing else is the reason Jesus said men ought always to pray and not to faint so that's good enough for us if the Lord said it that's it you know you heard of the bumper sticker God said it I believe it that settles it there's only one thing wrong with that my believing it doesn't settle it right when God said it that settles it so when Christ asks us to pray that's good enough for me but it's also a means of grace in the sense that as we commune with God and as we talk with God as our father the means of grace means that that's the way the Lord continues to transform us at the place where we need that transformation in other words that the main way that change happens is the reordering of our affections or reordering of our loves and I want to emphasize that because much of the time we are more concerned about external change or behavior whereas God is interested in the heart and a visit to the cardiologist is not going to solve it why do I do what I want to do because our hearts are always active we are seeking something our hearts are desiring something that's where change happens and the main area where change happens is in the area of our prayers it's a way to get more of God himself in the end we are like Asaph ought to be praying whom else do I have in heaven or earth beside you you alone are the strength of my heart and my portion forever why do we pray we're not praying like that little boy wanting a bike but we're saying God I want more of you I want to know you because you are the only one which satisfies when Christ's love becomes our identity it reorders all our other loves and that is why prayer becomes such an important way because we get more of God himself 
we talked about how should we pray jesus taught us in his word and if we have time we can delve into it we start with adoration we move to confession and thanksgiving and supplication but there are also different types of prayers and it sometimes the prayer is god i need help look at the psalm psalm 50 verse 15 is our 911 call upon me in the day of trouble and i will answer and i will deliver you and you will praise my name there's also brief prayers which are like i all i do when i'm walking upstairs every day to work i need the every hour lord i'm sorry i need the every minute help me then there's the prayers of thanksgiving how do you respond when a good thing has happened do we respond with all praise to you lord not unto us not unto us but unto your name alone be glory because of your mercy because of your truth or when a bad thing happens how do we respond do we respond like the wife of Dawson Trotman did when she heard of her husband being drowned in a lake as he was trying to save when they told her of that news she said our god is in heaven he does whatever he pleases that kind of faith is not built overnight isn't it as we get to know someone we trust him I know my wife well and she knows me but we didn't fall into this knowledge like falling into a ditch that's why the term falling in love is so antithetical to the biblical understanding of what love is love is someone knowing someone and still loving them the implications of our lord dying for us while we were still sinners are so huge that i think we fail to understand the implications of that for our own relationship so one of the ways that we know this god is not just through the cross but as we commune with him and then look at the next point it is what are the three kinds of prayer i made it easy one of the ways in which we pray is upward prayers where we begin with the knowledge of god and we praise him if you look at the biblical prayers they don't start off with god we are in trouble get me out look at the prayers of the disciples in acts it's a wonderful prayer as you read the biblical prayers which i suggest that you do no i would encourage you to do that they begin with god as the creator and their maker and then they move on to look at their threats when they were threatened they didn't say take away their threats and then deliver so all upward prayers are all filled with awe and adoration then we look at who god is and then we move inward that's where confession and repentance confession is to say the same thing about sin as what god says about sin and when we do that we are entering into the deeper intimacy of the assurance of grace that we have been loved we have been accepted in the beloved confession restores a broken relationship fellowship can be broken because of sin but the apostle encourages us if we confess our sins he is faithful and just to forgive us and the blood of jesus christ his son cleanses us from every sin so our relationship with christ is secure on the basis of god's love for us it does not we don't have to take a daisy and say he loves me he loves me not no the bottom line is that we are not strong enough to fall away from the god who has resolved to keep us in his love on our best day we are worse sinners than we would have ever imagined and on our worst day we are more loved than we will ever know that part is secured but just like in a marriage we don't get out of marriage just because we've had a disagreement there's tension in the relationship there is loss of intimacy and the quicker we confess our sins the greater the joy and the sooner the restoration of that intimacy that's why david would pray in psalm 51 restore unto me the joy of my salvation he didn't say restore to me my salvation then then there is the outward prayer of supplication and intercession those are not the only kinds of prayers but in general it's easier to organize that so much of our prayers should start with all as we then start with who god is and then move to who we are in the light of his word and then move outward and the next one is somewhat different and we put it as how to in the sense of where what is the context of our prayers of course we do have personal prayers but if you look at the lord's prayer the lord is not saying by the way the lord's prayer doesn't start off with our friend or anything of that nature our father was a revolutionary way in which jesus taught his disciples to begin prayer but he used the plural our father give us this day our daily bread so one of the ways in which we are seeing is that the prayer is not about us 
only, but it's also about the body of Christ. So salvation is personal, but the gospel is never private. So in that sense, the Lord's Prayer itself is a model of how our prayers should include corporate. It should be daily and constant. Now here are some of the hindrances to prayer. Sin itself. Uh, does anybody have Psalm 66 and verse 18? It's a, that's one of those things to memorize. <clears throat> if I had cherished iniquity in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. So if I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord would not hear me. Um, Satan certainly is a big part of our prayers not hearing, being heard, right? Satan fears the weakest Christian on his knees, but all of Satan's tactics are like this. He dreads nothing but prayer. His one concern is to keep saints from praying. He fears nothing from prayerless studies, prayerless work, prayerless religion. He laughs at our toil, mocks at our wisdom, but he trembles when we pray. We know that Daniel was praying, but he was not answered because Satan hindered his prayer until Michael came and fought the angel and then he could come. So sin and Satan, but there are a few other things. If we do not forgive, we read that. Mark 11, 25, if we come to pray and we realize we have something against our brother, we are to leave our gift at the altar and first be reconciled. Unforgiveness, relational issues, 1 Peter 3, 7, and then doubt. If I am talking to someone, how will it be if I keep saying, well, I don't really believe you. So he who comes to God must believe that he exists, that he is the rewarder of those who diligently seek him. And then our answers, you know, like the little boy who prayed, he got a no for an answer, but sometimes the love of God is so great that it's amazing that he will give us what we need, even though we didn't ask for it. So his answer may be yes and no at the same time, and yes to what we actually need and no to what we had asked for, but we should have asked for if we had known everything and what we knew was what we knew we really needed. So such is the prayer that when we are praying, we are given the assurance that your heavenly father already knows. We just read that what we need so that even when we pray, there is a part of our prayer which is messed up. The God, God is so gracious that he will remove that prayer request and give us what we need. But then the question becomes, what do we really need? And so part of our challenge is to know the word of God so that we know the will of God so that we ask according to his will then that verse is true that if we ask according to his will then he will give us and answer us not like this little boy who had his own agenda in fact one of the challenges I have is probably the hardest part of the prayer is that part where Jesus said thy kingdom come it's a radically dangerous prayer and I want to read out a section from Paul David's trip book, Whiter Than So, because it's convicted me many times. Here are the radical words I have been alluding to. Your kingdom come will be done on earth as it is in heaven. I must admit that I don't always greet God's kingdom with delight. There are things that I want in my life and I know not only want them, but know how, when and where I want them. I want my life to be comfortable. I want my schedule to be unobstructed and predictable. I want the people around me to esteem and appreciate me. How did he know about me? I want control about, over the situation and the relationships in my life. I want people to affirm my opinions and follow my lead. I want the pleasures that I find entertaining to be available to me. I want the ministry initiatives I direct to be well received and successful. I want my children to appreciate that they have been blessed with me as their father. I want my wife to be a joyful and committed supporter of all of my dreams. I don't want to suffer. I don't want to live without. I don't want to have to deal with personal defeat or ministry failure. What I'm saying is I want my kingdom to come and I want my will to be done. In this way, I stand with David. In David's kingdom, Bathsheba would be his wife. In David's kingdom, Bathsheba would have had no husband. In David's kingdom, he could have had Bathsheba and the blessing of the Lord on his reign at the same time. So David acted out of zeal for his own kingdom, forgetting that he was sent as the messenger of a greater king. Sadly, I do the very same thing. I get mad at one of my children, not because they broke God's law, but because they broke mine. 
I get impatient with my wife because she's delaying the realization of the purposes of my kingdom of one. Or I get discouraged with God because he brings the very uncomfortable things into my life that I work so hard to avoid. Thy kingdom come is a dangerous prayer for it means the death of your own sovereignty. It means your life will be shaped by the will of another. It means that you will experience the messiness, discomfort and difficulty of God's refining grace. It means surrendering the center of your universe to the one who alone deserves to be there. It means loving God above all else and your neighbor as yourself. It means experiencing the freedom that only can be found when God breaks your bondage to you. It means finally living for the one glory that is truly glorious, the glory of God. Quite convicting, isn't it? Let's move on. It's a command and it's expected, but the encouragement is that God answers prayer. Anybody have Matthew chapter 7 and verse 7 to 8? Uh, go ahead, read out. Passage will be given to you, seeking you will find, knocking will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks it will be opened. So God's prayer summons is an invitation, a royal invitation, a great privilege. If you got a letter in the mail saying you're invited to the White House, that's not to be construed as an RSVP, please. That's a command. How much more when we are invited to come into his presence, how much more who we have access. The only person who can wake up a king at 3 a.m. for a glass of water is his child. That's the access that we have. And God answers prayer. I was reading about President Roosevelt who had a long line of visitors and he was getting tired of it, I understand. And as he was growing, growing tired of it, he decided to test something. Everybody who came in and they were saying, hello, President, and so on, he just would repeat the same thing. I shot my grandmother. And one person said, as he was passing by, wonderful. The other person said, good show, my boy, or so on, until the Bolivian ambassador came by. And he finally heard what the president was saying and he said, maybe she deserved it. So, that's not our father. We are told that God, ans God listens to our prayers. Now the answer may be in no, yes or wait, but he does answer prayer. But the other thing is God is absolutely sovereign in his answers. Who has Daniel 9 verses 2 to 3? Daniel knew that God's purposes were about to be fulfilled, so he trusted in the sovereign purposes of God, and so he prayed. So God is sovereign in the sense that those are the three truths that ought to shape us. Our God is sovereign, he's good, he's wise. So whatever happens to us is within the confines of his will, so that we can pray with the psalmist, our times are in his hand. But none of us knows how to pray, which is why the disciples asked him, so prayer is learned. It's not something which we fall into, like falling into a ditch. It's learned, it's instinctive in that sense that everybody cries out to a God. But Christian prayer is different because the Holy Spirit puts into us that desire to pray as the spirit of adoption in Galatians 4, 6 to 7. And I think you, none of you had it. I thought of it later. But Galatians 4, 6 to 7 is a wonderful verse where it says God has put in our life into our hearts the spirit of adoption whereby we are able to call Abba Father. It is a tender term of affection which recognizes God as this loving Father who is supremely holy and yet cares for us. It is not to be confused with our modern daddy. It wasn't that way. It was not interpreted that way. When Jesus taught about our Father, he was taught, teaching something revolutionary because the Old Testament saints could not conceive of God as Father. Even in the Psalms, you would see David saying, like as a father pities his children, so the father has pity, so God has pity on his children. You couldn't think of, but God as father was a revolutionary concept. In fact, if there's one thing which makes the New Testament new, it is that now we approach God as our father, which is why the basis of all Christian prayer is our adoption in Christ. I wish we had more time to explore the concept of adoption, but it is the highest blessings, blessing of the gospel that to be forgiven of our sins by God the judge is a great thing. 
But imagine if the judge said, I want you to come home to be my child. I'm going to adopt you in the family. That is the highest blessing. And that is what makes everything different. Packer gave this definition of a Christian, which I think is so good and so deep. Who is a Christian? One who knows God as his father. Everything that Christ taught that makes the New Testament new is father. In fact, there was only one occasion in the life of Christ that he did not address God as his father. That was on the cross because on the cross, Jesus Christ could not address God as his father because he had become sin for us so that we now could address God as our father. That's a tender term which assures us that our father cares for us. Prayer is also learned from others, particularly the Psalms, the prayers of Jesus, the prayers we have given a whole chapter in John chapter 17, the prayer of Jesus, the prayers of Paul, for instance, praying with other Christians. Studying the prayers of the Bible is a wonderful exercise. The word feeds the meditation and meditation feeds our prayers. So that's why meditation has to be done. Greg's talked about it because once we read the word, we meditate on it in the meditation of our prayers, then drive meditation of the word drives our prayers. Let us say we are, for example, we are reading that portion about do not be anxious for anything. Every command in the scripture can be an occasion for confession. So we confess God, we praise you because you're sovereign and you have commanded us to be anxious for nothing. But I am anxious about these things. Will you forgive me? And then that confession leads to a petition for power because we may know the dynamic, but what we need is the power to do what we know we ought to do. When what we ought to do becomes what we want to do, then the Holy Spirit begins that work of transformation. So then we pray, Lord, help me to cast my care upon you because the word of God promises you care for us or in the Philip's translation, you are his personal concern. So that way, every command in the scripture can become a prayer and also a prayer of confession, a prayer of adoration and a prayer of petition. So that's why our Bible study should lead to meditation, which then drives our prayer. And I just want to look at the Lord's Prayer very briefly, not to go into detail, but you began with our Father who is in heaven. So the basis of all that prayer is basically our relationship with the Father. So no prayer, though God does not is not, God will answer prayer, but as far as his children, he assures them because our Father in heaven is the basis, which is our relationship with God. But look at the priorities. The priority is not our needs, our petitions is important. If we hallowed be your name, that's not a word that we use often. Hallowed is to make big. You know, glorifying God is one of the words that we use in the church, but we are not quite sure what it is. Hallowed be your name is to make the name of God great so that people will see the weightiness of who God is, that they might be attracted to him as this God who is above all. That's what it means, that your name may be revered. We are not going to rest until every convert becomes a worshiper. Let the nations be glad. Your kingdom come. We talked about what it means and your will be done. But then basis leads to priorities and then our petitions. Only after we have it's not like our Father in Heaven is kind of like a prayer starting tool, but it's the basis of all prayer, whether it's thanksgiving or petition or supplication, it's the entryway into the prayer, into the sanctuary, which then leads to priorities. But once we have prayed that petition, that priority, then we are ready for our petition. We are not quite ready to ask, give us this day our daily bread, which could mean our daily sustenance, but also because man shall not live by bread alone, we're actually praying, Lord, you are the bread that we need to feed on. Show me more of yourself. Show me, that's why we pray beyond the sacred pages, we seek you. And that's why we sing with the hymn, hymnist, we're singing, show me myself, show me my savior, show me my sin. And then we talked about forgiving us our debts. It's not that God's forgiveness of us is conditioned on our forgiving others, but the fact is that forgiven people are to forgive others. That's the proof that we are truly forgiven. And then comes the final word, which is leading us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. So when we look at what we are against, in Ephesians 6, we are given the spiritual armor, but I believe prayer is actually at the end of the spiritual armor. So prayer is not a spiritual armor, but one which overshadows and undergirds everything else. And that is because we are involved in the spiritual battle. 
Then we have the prayers of Paul and I left those for you. I don't have the time to go into it because I want to give some time for Q&A. But I'm going to just go ahead and look at some of the practical ways to pray and share some experiences about what has helped me. The first thing that helped me was to know who I am. I'm a child of the Father, so I have access. So that's the one truth that I want you to go ahead and saturate your prayers with. When you're a child of God, you're assured of access to the Father. The next truth is that we want our desires to be changed. We, duty without delight is drudgery, but duty with delight is doxology. Christian duty, which is divorced from delight, would be a life which is like a Pharisee. But when we have duty, we need also discipline to stay in that duty for some time. So pray until we pray. In other words, duty and discipline culminate in delight. That's why the psalmist quoted in the book of Hebrews says, Behold, in the volume of the book it is written of me, I come to do your will, I delight to do your will. So we want to pray for the delight that says, I can't wait to talk to my God. I talked to you before about the fact that you don't need to tell two lovers, spend more time with each other. In fact, you have to tell them, don't keep on spending time with each other. But why is it when we come to our relationship with the Lord that we think, oh, I got to pray. Prayer ought to be as natural as breathing in and out, instinctive. And that it will become when we grow to love the God who has loved us. So that's why we need to cultivate a habit of prayer, praying with other believers. I encourage you to come for the Wednesday prayer meetings. Prayer is where the action is. It also depends on how we look at prayer. Do we see it as supplemental or fundamental? Or as Corey Ten Boom says, do we see this as a steering wheel or a spare wheel? We need to set aside time to pray. What we think is most important, we will find the time to do. But we can also pray when we are doing other things. We need to be always thinking of prayer is only a word away, right? We can call upon the Lord, look at Nehemiah. When he was about to hand the cup, he'll say, Lord, you know, kind of like an arrow prayer, give me favor. We do need to have some way to pray. We can't just go into Lord's presence with scattered hearts. So think about the circles. The first circle is the nations, the government and the leaders. And then we think about our own people around in our workplaces. And then we think about our church family. Then we think about our own blood relatives, especially those who are not saved. And sometimes what I have done is, on Sunday I choose to do this, I'll walk through the Bible in my prayer, thinking of all the main characters in redemptive history, and what it reveals about my heart, but more importantly, what it reveals about the character of God. For instance, when I start with the Bible, I'll usually start with the creation account, and then say, Lord, we thank you that you didn't get caught by surprise when Adam and Eve sinned, but the spirit of Adam in terms of rebellion and not trusting in God is in me, but thank you that your love is such a strong love that it pursues us. Even when Adam was fleeing, you came seeking after him. So you look at that love of God in Adam, and then you look at the next character which I think of as Noah. It says, Noah found grace. We thank you, Lord, that in the story of Noah, we have a wonderful picture of Christ as the ark in which we are saved from the flood of God's judgment. You saved me from the ark, uh, from the flood of judgment, and we thank you that I found grace, not that I deserved. You see, you walk through the characters in redemptive history, and maybe you can choose one day of the week where you're not bringing any petitions at all and say, Lord, today I just want to praise you. It's, a, it's an exercise which is worth trying. Of course, vocalize your prayers, write it down, and praying through the commands in scripture. We talked about how you can turn every command into confession, and prayer for petition and praying through hymns now, we haven't talked about a lot of other things about the uh, asking god in prayer through faith and so on and so forth and you know as if our words contain some force so that once we pray as if god has to answer to all of which i'd only say what uh, the former president i think it was the vice president at Lee stevenson you know once norman vincent peel was quoted as saying there's more power in your prayer which is a wrong statement because there's no power in prayer it's the power is all in the holy spirit and the god to whom we pray but he mediates through it through the means of grace but anyway norman vincent peel was reported to have said there is more power in your prayer than is needed to power the city of new york to which at Lee stevenson is reported to have said paul i find appealing Pele, i found appalling so that's what the problem is. Sometimes we get into these wrong things, but 
Let me finish and give us some time, at least a few minutes. And that is, at the end of the day, our prayer is what the psalmist prayed. Whom am I in heaven but you? There is none upon earth that I desire beside you. I hope our heart's posture is like this. When you said, seek my face, my heart said to you, your face will I seek. Recently I was reading about a particular section in Lewis's novels, you know, the Chronicles of Narnia. There's one particular uh, portion in a book called The Horse and the Boy. And I don't know how many of you have read it, but this, I had read it before, but I hadn't actually given much thought to it. But this section intrigued me. And so I thought I'd share that with you before I open up our time for prayers. And one of those sections is where the boy is walking along. Shasta is his name. He's messed up a lot of things and he's dejected. He's walking with the horse. And suddenly he feels a large, rather large presence. He doesn't see the presence, but he hears it breathing. And finally he's scared and he turns around, doesn't see it, but he feels it. And so he asks, who are you? And the answer comes, one who has waited long for you to speak. And of course, that is Aslan, the Christ figure in all of the novels that uh, Lewis wrote about. So today, that's the same thing. You, the Lord is with us. He's walking with us and he says, I am the one who has waited long for you to speak. So I put some information on confession too. I don't have the time to explore it because this was supposed to be two lessons into one. But one of the things that I encourage you to look at is the reflection questions and the confession. And like I said, my simple definition of confession is saying the same thing about my sin as what God says and bringing it into his presence and saying, I'm not going to do that is repentance. So true confession is meaningless without true repentance. And it's always made in the light of the cross. So I'm gonna stop right here. That's a lot of information. And I hope you take some time to go through the handout, but more importantly, the best thing about prayer is that we have a lot of prayers and talks about prayers, but we're not doing much of praying simply because we're not convinced that it's so important in our lives. As I said before, if the Lord thought it was important, that's all that matters. So I encourage you to make prayer a routine habit and make that a routine discipline so that you move from duty to delight. So praying to God is an activity that you look forward to rather like when you were dating perhaps and you wanted to meet your boyfriend or your girlfriend who has now become precious to you. So as you become closer to Christ, I pray that the Lord will so become precious in our sight that we display to the world the superiority of living Christ as the supreme treasure of our lives. So let me stop here and throw open if you have any questions, concerns, comments.
are not that you know. And so I think that idea of God, you are sovereign. I have to trust you. I mean, to come to the forefront. It's wonderful prayer. Yeah, Don Carson said that we ought to resolve never to put people down except on our prayer list. So that's a prayer that we would all like to have, that uh, we would pray like that, that we would all become like one. And that's one way Paul prayed for this church is that they might grow in Christ-likeness. But that's a wonderful thing. If weakness is a, if uh, dependence is the goal, then weakness is an advantage. Yeah, anyone else? That's a wonderful prayer. Thank you for sharing, brother. finish with a real life story of my mother's colleague which I think will illustrate the point that I've made again uh, she had a colleague named uh, Jilly she was a professor and she lived in a home with a dad who was a businessman but he was also renting out some of his homes and he had a boarder named Joe so Joe was a boarder in their home and so he would have to come in at certain points and have to pay his rent every month and then over the course of a few years, Joe and Jilly fell in love and they got married. The boarder now became a son in the family. And that's really what has happened to those of us who have known God because we, in our unsaved state, we were paying the rent and saying, Lord, I've done this, this, you better give me what you owe me. But when we become a child, we come into his presence and like that prayer we just heard, Lord, I don't deserve anything. All I want is you. When the border becomes a child, then the response to a prayer of no will not be guilt or anger where the border will say, I deserved it and you didn't give it to me. I don't want anything to do with you. Or when they don't get anything, they may say, I must have done something wrong, like Julie Andrews singing somewhere in my childhood and so on and so forth. I must have done something right, she sings. But this boarder will sing. But a child will say, Lord, I thank you that you're, you're in grace, you give me what I need and in mercy you withhold what I don't need. So we have to ask ourselves, what is the basis of a prayer? Do I think of myself as a boarder living in God's house, paying rent, therefore I decide or I demand what God owes me or do I come as a child knowing, Father, I just want to know you. I want to love you more. Reveal yourself more of me. When we approach God with that attitude, prayer transforms that relationship into a one of intimacy where we are delighting in God. And that's really what the important thing which we are told is it? What is the chief duty or chief end of man? That is to know God and enjoy Him forever. And that's really where prayer takes us to, where we are delighting in God so that every waking moment, we are thinking of who God is and how much he has loved us and in response we want to say what will you have me to do I pray that our hearts will be so transformed that our desire is to please God and one way in which we manifest that desire is to talk to God remember what Shasta heard one who has waited long for you to speak brother would you close this in prayer